Choir musicians, thank you, all of you, for your ministry to the Lord and allowing us to share in that and have our hearts encouraged. Please uh, let me back up for just a moment. If you will, look with me at your worship folder again. Inside you will see a page entitled Wednesdays this fall at Wake Chapel. First Wednesday, September, October, November, we have a fellowship meal here at the church in our fellowship hall down here. That meets at 5.30. And uh, then at uh, 6.30, we have prayer meeting around the tables. And our young people, our children are invited to be a part of that. We have our dinner. We remain at the tables. We have a a time of prayer. And uh, then at uh, 7, we have some other programs that are ongoing. And if you'll notice those with me, the children's and youth ministries. uh, And then adults, two choices for seminars from 7 to 7.50. And we trust that you will avail yourselves of those times. They they had two great subjects, two fine teachers, And uh, so we would encourage you to take this sheet with you in your bulletin and notice it and uh, then join with us on Wednesday night. Now, one key thing, we usually have a little insert in the bulletin that you sign and drop in the offering plate if you're going to get the meal. Well, uh, that didn't make it in this time. So uh, with our apologies, if you can come and you will come and be with us for the fellowship meal at 530 this coming Wednesday evening, would you please call the church office on Tuesday morning? No, that's a burden. It's easier to do it here. And our sincere apologies for not getting those little things in the bulletin that we can sign. But we hope that will not keep you from coming. Uh, just give us a call and say, count my family, three of us, four of us, five, whatever. We'll be there this evening and we'll have that taken care of. Thank you very much. And again, please accept our apologies for not getting all that taken care of as we normally would. Please hang on to your worship folder for just a moment or two. Pray with me, please. Father, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And you are meeting with us. I pray that by your sovereign grace, release our minds to focus on heaven and on you and not on things of the week past nor things of the week to Give us these moments together with you. And as a result, may we be more like you We ask these favors in Jesus' name and for his sake. I want to take up this morning where I left off last Sunday. I raised the question in the message last Sunday about worship. What is it? And I would like for you to look at the inside of your worship folder for just a moment. We call it a worship folder. And you see uh, on the opening page there, welcome to worship. And then there's everything listed from the chimes to the postlude. Now, I have a question for you. You've been here, and we're down to the part that says sermon. If we do everything that is listed from the chimes to the postlude, have we worshipped? We've come to that which, which is called, and which is referred to as a worship service. But that's not my question. My question is, we leave here, having completed this, have we worshipped? And that leads to the question, what is worship? And this is the question that I pretty much left off with last Sunday morning. What is worship? Have you ever thought about it? I mean, seriously. What is it? We call it worship. Do we even... Well, let me ask. 
how much of an understanding of what worship is do we have? Is worship a grand building? Is that what it is? Is worship stained glass? Is worship muted organ tones? Is worship soft lighting? Is it folks kneeling? Is it music done in Latin? Is it music done, done with bands loudly playing on the platform? Is it candles? Is it praying? Is worship just a feeling? Almost every book that I have in my library and others that I don't have but have read dealing with worship somewhere leans heavily on Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to turn there with me, please. One does not have to be a minister, preacher, Bible teacher, scholar, theologian, or whatever, to read the first verses of Isaiah chapter 6 and see how they break down. I don't suppose there have been as many sermons as have been preached on Isaiah 6. I doubt that very many of them have failed to use the outline that's just so evident in the text. If you will just notice, looking over the whole passage, in 6, 1 to 4, we have a vision of a king. This is given to us by Isaiah. Uzziah was dead. And that's what chapter 6 opens with. It opens with a funeral. King Uzziah, who had served for 52 years and done well, was dead. And that's how chapter 6, verse 1 opens. In the year that King Uzziah died, and then, if you will notice, verse 5. After this vision of the great king in verses 1 to 4, then Isaiah responds, Then I said, and that continues, Isaiah's response there, um, I refer to that, and many have referred to it as a grieved prophet, a glorified king to begin, a grieved prophet in the second section here. And then the third section begins in verse 9 and runs down through verse 13. And that is a guilty people. And much is made of those things being part of worship. Now, they're not the only things, but they're part of worship as far as Isaiah is concerned. And I, I, I find it difficult to find a better example in God's word of worship than what we have here. Just to review for a moment, Isaiah's vision in the first four verses, and I won't read all those, but I'll just refer to a half a dozen things that are mentioned there. You can notice them. Isaiah's vision, he saw God sitting on a throne, exalted and immense, verse 1. He was, God was attended by seraphim in verse 2. God was announced as perfectly holy in verse 3. His glory filled the whole earth, again, chapter 6, verse 3. Inanimate objects trembled before him. Chapter 6, verse 4. And the temple was filled with smoke. Verse 4. That is Isaiah's. And we indicated last week that it could be, it seems like in verse 1, Isaiah is saying to us that he'd never seen the king. His focus had been an earthly king. Uzziah, 52 years on the throne. And I don't think in reading this, that Isaiah's vision ever got higher than an earthly king until that earthly king died. 
That's what he says, isn't it? In the king that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He didn't say anything about seeing him prior to that. Isaiah's vision of the glorified king led to a vision of heaven. And I refer to that as a greed prophet. And let me just share with you what's what I'm going to look at here in Isaiah's vision of himself. There's brokenness in verse 5. There's confession in verse 5. There's cleansing in verses 6 and 7. And there's hearing the voice of the Lord in 6, 8. And then encroaching just a little bit on the last section, there is a commission in chapter 6, verse 9. Now, there was an, an aged homiletics, hermeneutics teacher in seminary, 80-some years of age. He was visiting the class and was asked if he had any words to he stood up and said, when you get into the pulpit, do three things. Tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said. And I have told you what I'm going to say this morning, and now I'm going to say it. All right? The old preacher had some good advice and some wise counsel. Follow along with me. Our text opens with uh, verse 5. Having seen the Lord in those first four verses... And that is the foundation, may I say. Those first four verses are the foundation for everything that, that follows. He saw the Lord, saw the King, and all of those things that I mentioned that are uh, re referenced in verses 1 through 4. Having seen the Lord, the prophet now sees himself. Look at verse 5. Then I said, after the vision, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I believe this lets us know that it's only when an individual sees the Lord that he can see himself correctly. Our generation is struggling over how to view itself. And even Christian people, I think, become confused. And the situation will, I believe, forever be cloudy and unclear until we get a vision of God and all of his majesty. I don't know. Many of you, you've had vacation this summer. And, and uh, I don't mean to really put any church or any, anyone down, whatever. But when you have been to church on your vacation this summer, did you catch with the eye of faith a glimpse of the risen Lord? My dear, if it doesn't start there, either with our hymnody, with our music, or with the preaching, then I think personally we have failed and we have missed the purpose of our gathering. It is not worship if it doesn't begin there. We have gathered to worship Him. It is not about me. The church service is not about you. The church service ought to be to give glory to God and then to see ourselves and some things that flow from that vision of Him. That's what Isaiah did. I believe that's worship. I believe that's where it begins and ends. It just it has to do with the Lord. And until we see that, and see God in all His majesty, at least getting a glimpse with the eye of faith, then folks will forever be about how to see themselves. And until we catch that vision of the Lord high and lifted up, there will never be an appropriate sense of our sin. You remember... Job of old, mine eye sees thee, and I repent. Mine eye sees thee, and I repent. 
Nehemiah said, we have sinned against, we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have acted corruptly. From Peter in the New Testament, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. We cannot see ourselves accurately. We cannot see ourselves as God sees us. We cannot see ourselves biblically until we have a vision of the risen Lord and know who he is and know something of his majesty. It is then and only then that we will have the beginning of a proper vision. Isaiah has seen the Lord and now he was seeing himself. And the feeling that swept over him was brokenness. Brokenness. Folks tell me once in a while, I come to the church so I can leave and feel good. I'm not sure we're supposed to feel good every time we walk out the back door. If we see the risen Lord and see ourselves, the next thing that ought to come is a sense of brokenness. I have sinned against God. Isaiah saw himself and he saw something about how ugly sin really was. He cries out in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. What a statement. Woe is me, I am ruined. He was confessing his sin. Specifically, it seems to me that from what we read in the text of these verses, that he realized that his mouth was the great organ of his sinfulness. Words and phrases tumbled from his mouth that were destructive, that were sinful. Now at this point, if you read the commentaries and you do some study on your own, you're going to find out that uh, there are some expositors who suggest that Isaiah, prophet of God, had trouble with profanity. One man has written, Isaiah has just admitted he had a foul, he was a foul-mouthed sinner. That expositor continues, it shouldn't shock us, therefore, to take his confession literally. He had no doubt struggled with profanity. And others have written with equal vigor, he was not given to anything that would be questionable, certainly not to filthy language. Now, I'm really not drawn into that debate, okay? Uh, men can write, expositors can write, priests can say, and I'm in that group. We can say what we believe to be the truth in the pulpit after studying the Word of God. All I know is that Isaiah the prophet of God said, Woe is me, I am un I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Now you can read that and you can interpret that matter of unclean lips any way you please. But Isaiah is saying, this is my sin. I've got trouble with my mouth. I wonder, anybody here have trouble with their mouth? And I'm not talking about oral hygiene. If you want to talk about oral hygiene, there's a gentleman sitting right here. And he can help. You stop by his office. Anybody here have trouble? You ever say things you shouldn't say? You ever gossip? What an ugly word, Pastor. Gossip? Yes. And then having seen himself as a sinner, he said, I live among a people. Isaiah had a problem. And he was networked with a group of people that had the same problem as he. I believe Isaiah, as a while ago, was seeing sin in all of its ugliness. All of its hostility against God. All sin is against God. That's where it starts. Remember the great old character of the great character of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis? How can I sin and do this evil against God? He wasn't speaking of Potiphar's wife. How can I sin and do this evil against God? All sin is against God. 
Sometimes I wonder if I realize, sometimes I, sometimes I wonder if all of us realize that sin is hostility against God. It's not some minor thing. Hostility against God. W.E. Sangster was a well-known and great Methodist. He died in 1960. Strong ministry through the 30s and up until his death. Well-known. Worth reading. You can find something by him. In 1930, 30 years before his death, in 1930, Sangster wrote these words. Would you listen? This is a well-known, gifted, godly Methodist preacher for a lot of years. A man worth emulating. He said, I'm a minister of God, and yet in my private life, I'm a failure in these ways. He was journaling when he wrote these things. He said, I'm irritable, easily put out. I'm impatient with my wife and my children. I'm deceitful in many ways. Then he gave an example. He said, I often express private annoyance when a caller is announced and then simulate pleasure when I actually greet them. I couldn't help but think, has the doorbell ever rung at your house and you're thinking, oh my word, what is this? I'm not ready for company. The house is a wreck. I don't know who this is and I got stuff to do. And you go to the door and you're, oh my, I'm glad to see you. That's what Sangster was saying. Someone was announced to see him. Private annoyance. Simulated pleasure. He continues, from an examination of my heart, I conclude that most of my study, this is damning to any preacher, I conclude that most of my study has been crudely ambitious, that I have wanted degrees more than knowledge and praise more than equipment for service. He mentions one last thing. Even in preaching, I fear that I am more often wondering what people think about me than what they think about my Lord. He went on to say, I find envy in my heart at the greater success of younger ministers. I match myself with them in thought and am vaguely jealous when they attract more notice than I. There was a man who saw himself, I believe, out of a vision of God and he saw the ugliness of sin and acknowledged it. May I suggest that a vital part of what I believe to be true worship is getting a glimpse of God in all of His glory and then seeing ourselves as we really are followed by a sense of brokenness. Dear God, I have sinned. But I say it doesn't stop with an awareness or a feeling of brokenness. Look at verse 6. Then, after... Verse 5 and the events of verse 5. Then one of the seraph flew to me. And that's a reference to what we have already read, verse 2. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken <clears throat> from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, the, this is touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. I don't think the need for cleansing can be stressed much. In our fellowship, we have communion quarterly. And that's fine. I grew up with it that way. But sometimes I look at churches that observe communion every week. And I think, wouldn't that be a wonderful reminder every week 
of our sin and of the need to confess our sins and get right with God. Now, I'm not advocating change at all. I think we do things in a very appropriate fashion. But I'm just wondering, musing, meditated on this past week, communion is a time when the focus is on getting right with God before we partake of the Lord's table. And I just don't think you can make too much of being clean before the Lord. Like Isaiah, our lips are unclean. And we live among a people of unclean lips. We've got a lot of good, gifted, godly, patient school teachers here. I have had many of them say to me something about the language in junior high school or high school. One day I stopped at a place I could legally park to listen to kids when they got out of school. The air was blue, unimaginable. Just roll the windows down the car and listen as they walked by. Incredible. Junior high, high school. I don't want to be accusatory, but I wonder where they learned that. They weren't born with it in them. They heard somebody else use that language and they picked it up. Like Isaiah, we live in the midst of a people with unclean lips. And I want to add a point to this, if I can, please. Uh, have you noticed the slang that we use today so commonly? Incredible, isn't it? We take for granted stuff. We need to be clean before God. There ought to be a, some kind of a spirit of brokenness after we see the living Lord. And then there needs to be cleansing and confession. That's what Isaiah was going through. Again, let me say, I think this is a very good example of worship and all that worship should entail. I don't remember who it was, but someone suggested to me to read the journal of another man. I referred to Sangster a while ago. Uh, this was not a, a, a monk, but he spent seven months in a Trappist monastery. Okay? Somebody from the outside got permission and spent seven months in a Trappist monastery. And he wrote of his experience, one of his experience. Bear with me. I know that it is, as a general rule, when pastors read more than a few sentences, uh, people tend to rest in peace. I hope you will bear with me and listen to this man who recorded some of his thoughts in his own journal after spending seven months in a Trappist monastery. He writes of one experience. For four and a half hours, I worked with Brother Theodore and Brother Benedict at the raisin washer. Theodore washed, Benedict collected the raisins, and I folded the empty boxes. Suddenly, Theodore stopped the machine and knocked with his fist against his head. Not knowing the sign language, I said, what's the matter? He said, a stone went through. I asked him, how do you know? He said, I heard it. I asked, how could you hear it between the noise of the machine and the raisins cascading through it? I just heard it, he said. And he added, we have to find that stone. If a lady gets it in her bread, she can break her tooth on it and we will be sued pointing to a large bathtub-like container full of washed raisins, he said, we have to push those through again until I find that stone. I couldn't believe it. Benedict hadn't been able to detect the stone while the raisins came out, 
But Theodore was so sure that objection was senseless. Millions of raisins went through to be washed again. I had given up looking for it because I thought it was like finding a needle in a haystack, he writes. But then something clicked. There it is, Theodore said. It jumped against the metal wall of the washer. Benedict looked carefully and moved his hands through the last ounce of raisins. There it was, a small purple-blue stone just as large as a raisin. Theodore took it out and gave it to me with a big smile. As I thought about purity and purification, even a small stone that looks like all of the good-tasting raisins had to be taken out. I can't even notice my own little sins, but it offers me consolation to know that someone will keep a careful watch on me and stop the machine when he hears a stone among the raisins. And that, of course, would be the Lord. Verse 8 continues in our text. Would you notice that he said, Then, if you'd circle the word then, it might be helpful to you. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. The word then, where it's located in our text, um, brings me to the observation. Have you noticed in the first seven verses, the throne sitter that he saw in verse 1 hasn't said anything? I saw the Lord, verse 1, sitting on the throne. And the throne sitter, sitter says nothing until we get to verse 8. I don't know how far to press it. But as far as Isaiah is concerned, God didn't speak to him until Isaiah had a vision of the Lord and of his own brokenness and was cleansed and forgiven. Then God spoke to him. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. And it is only when cleansing was accomplished that Isaiah could say, here I am, send me. What is worship? I think it's seeing a vision with the eye of faith of the Lord and all of His majesty and all of His glory. I believe worship includes looking inward with the resultant sense of brokenness. And then comes cleansing and confession. And then only then and after that in verse 9 comes the commission. And the commission is to a guilty people. A glorified king, a grieving prophet, and a guilty people. I believe all of those things need to be part of worship. I want to look next Sunday at his vision of a guilty. Dear friends, I ask at the beginning if you would look through your worship folder and ask if we go through all these things have we worshipped? Answer, not necessarily. If we leave this place or if we leave the place of our personal devotional studies with no sense of brokenness, I don't think worship has taken place. I trust and I'm asking you to read Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 13, several times before we gather next Sunday and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts but what it really means to worship Him. Pray with me. Father, we have been inoculated by church services 
we come in and we talk so loud that the prelude can't be heard. We are concerned about communing one with another when perhaps we need to be communing with the risen Lord. We listen to another sermon. We sing a closing hymn. We greet one another in fellowship with one another as is appropriate. And we leave this place and we're just like when we came in. We haven't worshipped. We've gone through a ritual. Lord, help us. Give to us a sense of worship. Help us not to be like Isaiah whose eyes never rose above an earthly level until King Uzziah died. And then he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. We need to worship you, our Father. You need to be the sum and substance of our vision of heaven. And it needs to impact us in significant ways. Not just, oh, hum, another hymn, another message. We need a vision of the Lord. And that needs to change us. We belong to you. We ask that you would work in our hearts by your grace and by the enabling of the Holy Spirit of God to bring these things to pass. In Jesus' name we pray. Our closing hymn this morning is number 371 in your hymnal. 371. Have thine own way, Lord. Thou art the potter, I am clay. Mold me, make me after your will. God bless you. Go with you, give you peace through the afternoon, a good night's rest, and raise us tomorrow to be a little bit more like Jesus than we've been today. One other thought before Tim Beck, who is our deacon today, comes to dismiss us. Please remember, don't let Wednesday night slip by before you forget to call about dinner. It's a, it's a sweet time, uh, a good time of fellowship. We enjoy that very, very much. So if you'll give us a call here at the church uh, Tuesday morning and just say, count me, I'll be there. God bless you. Tim? I am not unsympathetic to all the people on the, the prayer list. But I just want to tell you that ever since Don Guy was diagnosed with cancer, I can't get him out of my head. And I don't know him. I mean, I know him when I see him. It's not like we're friends or we're close. But I just can't stop thinking about him. I don't know whether it's because he's a young guy, uh, at least to me, or because he's so vibrant. Every time you see him, you know, he's smiling and upbeat. But there's just something about it that uh, I can't get over. So, if you will, I'd like us all to pray silently that the Lord heal Don Guy. And I want us to pray as if he was our own brother or maybe our own son, maybe our own husband, or maybe our own daddy, if you can. Try to pray that earnestly. We'll do that silently and then I'll close and we'll go on home. Lord, we all know that we can't live on this earth forever. We've all got to die. And we understand that. But we also know that your book promises us that the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I don't really understand how that works out. But I believe it. And I ask you, Lord, to see Don Guy through this sickness and heal him. 
And if you do, we'll all give you the glory for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.